Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink, a writer, a reader and a former bookseller. And this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the launch of Harry Potter. The Bookseller also runs the annual British Book Awards, which is like the BAFTAs for books. In this edition, we'll talk to Dr. Rongan Chatterjee about his brilliant book, The Stress Solution. We're not designed to eat food from the minute we wake up to lasting at night when we're in front of Netflix watching something, <laughs> right? We're not, we're not designed to do that. You'll hear Tom Tivnan and Caroline Sanderson discuss January publishing. I do remember as a bookseller, that does kind of sum up everything that was published in my 10 years of bookseller. That's just my internal monologue. (laughs) Anyway. And we'll have an audiobook extract from The Binding by Bridget Collins. It was a book block, neatly sewn, with thick dark end papers threaded with white, like tiny roots reaching through soil. We'll also be talking to this month's book doctors, two indie booksellers from Bristol, about which books they would choose for our eager readers wanting to know what to pick up next. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. Tom Tivnan is the bookseller's managing editor. Hello. And Caroline Sanderson is associate editor. Hello. And with me, as he is every month, is the bookseller's chief executive, Nigel Roby. Hello. January. It's cold outside, all right. For booksellers, January used to be uniquely about New Year, New You. But Tom, you're seeing a wider breadth of publishing. Is that right? Yeah, I think in the last few years, we've seen a change of kind of publishers and booksellers uh, ways of viewing the month. And it's not just books about getting yourself into shape and being the best you that you can be. (laughs) Uh, But it's a time to bring out some of the big books of the year. I mean, in 2018, two of the biggest selling books of the year, uh, Gail Honeyman's Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. And The Tattooist of Auschwitz by Heather Morris, both came out in January and they sold throughout the year. And we're seeing a few books coming out in January that I think come award season will be some of the ones that are still being considered. Hitting the long lists and short lists. Tell us about some of them. Well, I think number one is um, John Lanchester's The Wall. People might be familiar with John Lanchester. He wrote a book a few years ago called Capital, which is broadly about the uh, financial crash, and it was later made into a BBC One TV series. The new one, The Wall, is an allegorical, I would say, state-of-the-nation novel and it concerns a wall that separates the UK from the rest of the world. A, a 10,000... <laughs> yeah. I wonder where he got that I idea know, from. Brexit, Trump. <laughs> um, but it's really good. And it, it's about the wall has been militarised and regular folk have to man it. And it's just really wonderful. It came out the first week of January. And I think I'd be surprised if it's not in the booker. So nice to start off the year with some nice big hitters in literary fiction. I very much enjoyed a book you recommended to me, January title, My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyinkan Braithwaite. Yeah, this is amazing. Uh, This is a very young, sickeningly young uh, (laughs) new author. The book is set in Nigeria. She's from Nigeria. She did a creative writing course here in um, London. As it says on the tin, (laughs) it's a comic novel about um, two sisters, an older one and a younger one who is 
the more beautiful sister, the favorite, uh, the more beautiful sister um, has a slight problem in that she keeps killing her boyfriends, and the older, more responsible one has to kind of constantly cover her up, like shove yeah. the dead bodies into the car and all that Turn kind of stuff. Turn up with a bottle of bleach it, yeah, and some oh, it's marigolds. Really, yeah, it's a wonderful novel. I, I, I can't recommend it more highly. Well, you recommended it to me, and I loved it, and hoovered it all up greedily one evening. I thought it was excellent. An amazing cover, the coolest cover I think I've seen in quite it a while. It is the coolest cover. It's just uh, wonderful. It's, and another one I like is um, Blood and Sugar, which is... Um, by Laura Shepard Robinson. It's set in 1780s uh, London. Uh, a body is found in the Deptford docks and this kind of courageous captain tries to solve the murder. But it's really about the slave trade. It's called Blood and Sugar because it's about the triangle trade, about selling people to you know the Americas and getting the, the sugar back and the money. And it's really an interesting look at, obviously, crime, but what... You know, was the underpinning of the, this great empire is that, you know, the suffering of very many people. Um, I have a copy of that and I opened it and it also has maps in it. Yeah, you love a map. I do. I love a map <laughs> in a book. The, another thing I love about books is I love end papers in books um, and book design generally. And I very much enjoyed a book called The Binding by Bridget Collins, mm. which is about a young man who has to be apprenticed to a bookbinder and everybody views this with fear and suspicion but he has very little choice he he has to go and um, we'll be listening to a clip of that at the end of the program and I think it might actually involve a little bit about end papers in it and Tom you've also been looking at books in the media this week so explain to us what that is right books in the media is our aggregation of the reviews of the books that are coming out we look at about 40 45 or so um the biggest uh news outlets uh, that cover books and we kind of show you the ones that are being feted the most mm-hmm. one of those is called kafka's last trial that which just came out it was a really interesting book it's by benjamin ballant um kafka the great franz kafka of course did not publish much in his lifetime and he told his his friend and associate max broad to just burn all his papers uh, Max didn't, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully for world literature, uh, and sold them. But th- this whole book is a really interesting tale about what happened to the literary state afterwards and the battle between the state of Israel and Germany about who actually owns the rights to Kafka's estate. It's really fascinating. Uh, Ballant is um, an Israeli, and I think he has uh, a bit of a um, love-hate relationship with his country uh, or his country's way of presenting themselves to the world. And it's really fascinating. And a trial about Kafka's literary works is the most Kafkaesque thing you could probably think of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's really fascinating. And, it, and it's been reviewed everywhere and it's rave reviews everywhere. Uh, one of the other really interesting ones that I found this week that has gotten quite a good reviews is Susan Orlean's The Library Book. Uh, people might know Susan Orlean. She wrote um, The Orchard Thief um, itself, which was sort of made into a film called Adaptation by Charlie Kaufman a few years ago. And this is about the arson of the Los Angeles Public Library in 1986. It kind of works on two levels. There is the sort of true crime story about the guy who is eventually found out to have burned the Los Angeles Public Library is so strange. I don't want to give much away, but it's such a compelling read about that alone. It's great. But the other part of it is about how we fund libraries in this day and age, obviously Mm. in America and here. We have the difficulty of how our public libraries are going to be funded, who has the say of what goes into those public mm-hmm. libraries, what exactly we're doing there. It's really, really fascinating. 
And it has these little tidbits as well, because one of the reasons the library burnt down is because the fire code laws were changed for libraries, specifically in America, because there's no sprinklers. <laughs> Up until the 2000s, libraries in America didn't have to have sprinklers because it was felt that water would be more damaging to books than fire. Lovely. Thank <laughs> you. Caroline Sanderson, you write a monthly column for the bookseller about nonfiction. January is a huge month for health titles, isn't it, as we try to recover from all that festive excess? It certainly is. And um, as a previewer, uh, I mean, obviously, I love every month um, of previewing. (laughs) But uh, January, I always have this slight, oh, here we go again, because in that sense, it's always been the most predictable month of the year. Um, Having said that, we've recently seen um, a lot of the big New Year, New You books move into the end of December. So it's almost like you can't quite get the Christmas feasting out of the way before you're you're moved on, move along swiftly. (laughs) It's 27th December. Get on with it. Yes, exactly. So there's been that sort of change. But I've noticed something I think much more interesting, which I think we're seeing this year. So instead of that usual sort of huge range of how to lose weight this way, that way, how to exercise this way, that way, a more thoughtful approach and what one might call a more 360 degree, 365 days of the year approach to health. And I think um, the fact that you have Dr. Rangan Chatterjee uh, on the podcast is is great because I think he's a great exponent of that. The fact that because mental health issues are getting so much more valuable attention these days, I think his previous book, The Four Pillar Health Plan, was just a great example of a book that looks at the whole picture and says, well, you know, in that old fashioned classical way, you've got to have a healthy mind and a healthy body. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work. And whilst there are still lots of classic diet books around... Um, and two of the big sellers at the moment, um, Joe Wicks, Veggie Lean in 15, Tom Carriage, Fresh Start, uh, kind of epitomise that. I think, I think it's very interesting what's happening. Yes, I mean, even those two books as well. There's less of the um, don't eat any food at all in January because you must be thin, you revolting monster because you ate too much at Christmas, <laughs> isn't there? Which it, I do remember as a bookseller, that does kind of sum up everything that was published in my 10 years of books. That's just my in- internal monologue. Anyway. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I think Joe Wicks has built his success on an extraordinarily consistent, you know, looking after people's weight and health. You know, I mean, what he does is extraordinary, the energy with which he's constantly posting. So I think that if you're if you're following Joe Wicks's plans, you know, you you have this constant support system. Mm -hmm. So, of course, some people do need to lose weight, but it's not a flash in the pan thing. It's much more, I don't know, supportive, I suppose. Tom Kerridge, I guess, is somebody, I mean, he's just such a great character and a lot of fun. And I, and I think he, because he's demonstrated that he's done this himself, I mean, that just means everything. Instead of someone really kind of lithe and fit looking telling you you need to get fit and lose weight. Um, There's a great picture of him somewhere, isn't there, of him standing in his old pair of trousers, sort yeah, of about yes. a quarter of the man he used to be. Yes, like. indeed. Yes. <laughs> um, what other titles stand out? More about not drinking? Yes. I mean, I think along with veganism, I picked up um, banning the booze as sort of the the, the big trend. I think this is slightly different. I mean, I've I've sort of found this personally quite influential, particularly a book called The Alcohol Experiment by Annie Grace. And again, this is about not just hurtling through January, desperate to get to the 1st of February so you can have a drink again. Mm -hmm. It's about, well, why do you drink in the first place? Well, what is alcohol to you? What is it in your life? So it's a much more thoughtful approach to that whole, you know, January thing about, oh, I must do something. And of course, we have, you know, dry January is a very much an established 
thing now. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely something people are thinking about. But, um, you know, you can't just stop on 31st of January and take up all your old habits again. That's, <laughs> what do you uh... mean you can't just <laughs> That's what I'm planning. No, I'm you can't. <laughs> want to be more thoughtful. I'm going to slip in a little quick recommendation here because I no longer drink alcohol at all as of 18 months ago and I'm a very happy sober person these days. And that's the unexpected joy of being, being sober, sober, which yes. I would highly recommend if anyone is troubled by the drinking and want some sort of um, help to think about how they might Well, that's by Catherine Gray, who's a, who's a great writer. And in fact, she's back this, um, I think actually it came out the end of December, The Unexpected Joy of Being Single. Oh, so there you are. So if you're Jeff Bezos or yes. Mrs. Jeff Bezos. Um, She's such a good writer, almost makes me want to leave my husband so I can try. Yeah, I was just thinking of Cassie's No comment. A... I think it's more about the joys of singledom than the joys of divorce, let's be fair. Well, but, uh... maybe she can write that for me in the future. <laughs> I should stop before he divorces me. Uh, Caroline, what other non-fiction would you like to tell us about in January? Well, as a complete antidote to trying to, all this sort of self-improvement, I absolutely loved Quicksand Tales, The Misadventures of Keggy Carew by Keggy Carew. Um, Keggy is the author of Dadland, which was a memoir of her father, who was a special operations executive during the Second World War. Mm. And in Dadland, she sort of uncovers his story, the story of the father that she only sort of tangentially knew about. When a, he I mean, was it's alive. a great book, isn't it's it? It's a great book. It won the Costa Biography Prize. I love Keggy's writing and this book is still recognisably Keggy writing it, but it's completely different. And it's just a great catalogue of all those very embarrassing things that have happened to all of us. But she's sort of parading them in this book for us all to enjoy. Uh, There's a great one about a purse that goes missing after some friends have been staying in their house and... uh, whether she thinks they've stolen it or not, and that's terribly embarrassing. There's a great one about being sort of persuaded to buy a camel. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) And there's another one about a completely disastrous weekend and what's supposed to be a big birthday celebratory stay in a posh hotel, which goes completely pear-shaped. And I just love the fact that she's just allowing us to have all this fun with all her stuff-ups, you know, over the years. Lovely. And anything else? Uh, well, I'm if I'm allowed to dip just into February a little, just a little bit with one that I'm... Oh, go, go on. Go on. Yeah, because I'm so... I thought this book was so extraordinary. A book called War Doctor, Surgery on the Frontline by David Knott. Um, David Knott has a day job in the NHS as a surgeon, but for the past 20 years, he's been taking unpaid leave, essentially, to go mm-hmm. and walk in war zones all over the world. Started off working, I think, in, in Bosnia during the Yugoslav conflict and has worked latterly a lot in Syria and it's just I think it, it's sort of part of the trend we've seen for people writing about as it were in inverted commas ordinary jobs but people who do remarkable things mm-hmm. just in the day-to-day of those jobs and he is an absolute stellar example of that. So lots of lists knocking around in the papers at the moment books to look out for in 2019 what's caught your eye both Tom tell us what you're looking forward to or what you've already read indeed. Unquestionably the literary event of 2019 will be the new Margaret Atwood, uh, the sequel to Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is coming out in September. Unless Charles Dickens comes back from the dead with a new novel, there won't be a more exciting book this year. It'll be interesting to see what it's like because the television show has gone beyond the original source material and there's a sort of sequel, as it were, in the second series of the television show. So it'll be interesting to see what Atwood takes to the characters and more interesting, perhaps, to see what the Me Too generation Trump 
world that we live in has how that has affected uh, the next book. Mm. But I can't wait for that. My second book that I'm looking forward to is called Horizon by Barry Lopez, which is out in March. You can't see this, listeners, but Caroline is nodding enthusiastically across the table. Um, <laughs> yes, Barry Lopez event. wrote one of my favorite books of all time called uh, Arctic Dreams, which is a um, nonfiction book about the Arctic and how we relate to it as a species. And this is kind of similar, and he kind of looks at both poles. And he's one of the best nature writers that we have. Can I throw in one then, Kathy? Go, go Just for prompted it. by Tom's nature writing, because um, the one I'm looking forward to. I think Caroline's <laughs> going to shout at me. So I'm just going to say, I was going to mention Rob McFarlane. <laughs> well, I think we were both going to mention oh, okay. that. You, but go you, then. You, you, you go ahead. Actually, I suppose I, what I can do is make a link between Barry Lopez and set you up to talk about Robert McFarlane. Um, because, I mean, Barry Lopez is... It's such a publishing event because he's, he's so revered. I mm. mean, if you read nature writers talking about the writers who have influenced them, I mean, he comes up time and time again. Mm. And Robert McFarlane is one of those people who, who have referenced Barry Lopez. So That's my over cue. to you, Nigel. <laughs> yeah, so Rob McFarlane, Robert McFarlane, author of Landmarks, Wild Places, and of course last year's amazing success with Jackie Morris, the illustrator, Lost Words. So he has Underland coming out in May. I've got a proof of that. Uh, I mean, it's just so far, it is absolutely fascinating. And it's got a cover illustration by Stanley Donwood that uh, Rob works with uh, on a lot of his books that is just stunning. Uh, in fact, if you look at uh, Rob Vaughan's Twitter account, I think he uses it at the top. But uh, yeah, that's. It's that's luminous, my isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely luminous. Tip yes. top? No, top tip. That's the month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm keen on uh, Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams, uh, yeah. which is a very engaging novel about a young black journalist navigating life, love, smear tests, wanting to write about serious issues when her editors won't let her. I thought it was um, charming and fresh. I've heard great things about that too. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to mention a book called Black, Listed by Geoffrey uh, Boacci, and that's coming out in April I read it and I just, it was such a joy. It just deconstructs all the, the language and terms that are used for what he calls melanin-heavy people. Um, <laughs> and from from the use of black or white to people of colour mm-hmm. and black British. And it's done with such panache and humour. I, I just think it's enormous fun, but sort of deadly serious mm-hmm. at the same time. And I think it's a, it's a great achievement. Mm. And then the the novel that I have just read and is quivering on the table next to me because I'm just... You know when you read a novel and you just love it so much and you just desperately want to enthuse to everybody in the world about it? And is it nice when you then immediately can? Um, It's called The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins and it is about a maid who has been taken from the plantation in Jamaica... And she's been given as a gift to this couple and the couple end up murdered and she's now on trial for her life. And it's just spectacular and joyous. I'm looking at the advanced copy. There's an ornate pair of antique Mm. gold scissors on the front. I promise you they become relevant (laughs) later on. But it's just wonderful. I think she's so talented. Uh, First novel, I think she's a lawyer. So again, that's quite interesting, uh, I think. A lawyer now writing about this historical trial. Um, Very interesting about race, about gender. Um, But just a 
joyous, immersive, make the world go away because I need to finish my novel sort of a read. It's such a delight, isn't it? I mean, I think we are so lucky to get early sight of a lot of these books and uh, be part of hopefully, you know, building the excitement around them. And that's always a joy and a, a privilege. And, you know, I, I have a nice pile of novels usually behind everybody else, but it's it's a lot of fun. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And now it's time to talk to Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. He's a practising GP and the author of last year's bestseller, The Four Pillar Plan. Now he's on a mission to help us combat stress. His new book is called The Stress Solution, and I can tell you it's an enlightening and a calming read. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's estimated that 60 to 80% of GP consultations are related to stress. Has that always been so, or do you think it's a problem of modern life? I think it's a problem of modern life without any question at all. I've been a practising doctor now for nearly 18 years. And even if I think back to 10 years ago, I don't think I saw as many stress-related problems as I do today. Even five years ago, I think this is a problem that's getting worse, which is no doubt why the World Health Organization are calling stress the health epidemic of the 21st century. And yes, statistics and science shows us that about 80% of what I see as a GP in any given day is in some way related to stress. Now, that sounds like a lot, but when I explain what those symptoms are, I think suddenly you'll start to realise actually why stress is so prevalent and how many different symptoms it causes. So, you know, as a doctor, every day I see things like anxiety, low energy, low moods, insomnia, inability to concentrate, poor memory, even things like low libido, mm-hmm. gut problems such as irritable bowel syndrome, and even things like high blood pressure, obesity and type 2 diabetes, actually all of these seemingly separate symptoms, when we look at them on a root cause level, stress is a key driver. And that's really why I wrote this book, is to help people understand just how prevalent stress is, but more importantly than that, what simple things that we can all do to actually help ourselves manage it. Um, I really loved the notion of micro stress doses, which I hadn't been able to put an explanation to them before reading your definition. Tell us about micro stress doses. Well, this really comes down to this whole idea that all of us have our own personal stress threshold. Basically, we want to stay as far away from that threshold as we possibly can. A micro stress dose is something that in isolation actually doesn't do much. Mm -hmm. It's not too bad. But when you add it up on top of other micro-stress doses, your stress load adds up, it mounts up, and it brings you closer and closer to your threshold. And when you're at your threshold, that's when things start to go wrong. That's when you might you know, feel tightness in your shoulder, you might feel backache, you might have a stiff neck, um, you might start to overreact, get emotional, um, have road rage and when, you, when you're out in your car, as opposed to when you're feeling calm and you're further away from that threshold and actually someone cuts you up in the roads and it doesn't bother you because you're feeling chilled. A typical day for so many of us is that we go to bed late because we've you know, maybe been binge watching Netflix the night before. And again, I like to do that, so I'm not, I'm not sort of <laughs> criticising people who do that. So your alarm goes off, let's say, at 6.30. For many of us, it's our phone. So at 6.30, we're in a deep sleep, phone alarm goes off, it jolts us out of it. Micro stress dose number one. We're feeling tired, so we press the snooze button. Six minutes later, it goes off again, micro-stress dose number two. Then we think, oh, I probably should get up now. So we look at the phone, and actually we might go onto our email, say, oh, what's been going on? We see four work emails that we've not replied to, and we think, oh, I didn't get around to that yesterday. I've got, I, need to, I need to get that done quickly. Micro-stress dose number three. 
then you might get a ping from your gas company saying, actually, your gas bill's due or your credit card bill's due, microstress dose number four, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you get up late, your toast burns because actually, you know what, you weren't watching it and then you can't have breakfast before you leave the house. And I try and make the case in my book that actually for many of us, before we've even left the house in the morning, we've been exposed to an average of 10 to 15 microstress doses. You're leaving the house in the morning much closer to your stress threshold than you would have otherwise, which means it's going to take less in the day to tip you over. So over the last couple of years, I've come to see that my phone, that little you know portable miracle worker, that magnificent piece of technology, it's really bad for me if I don't make efforts to control my usage. And so much of what you just said, it's about the fact that our phone now can deliver all this stuff basically to our pillow, isn't it? So... Do you think it can be that our phones make us sick? And what can we do to mitigate the effects of it? Technology, and in particular smartphones, are a big source of our stress. You know, I, I say in the book that they're a shiny box full of micro-stress doses. <laughs> as soon as you open it up, actually, they just start flying at your head. Mm-hmm. And it's not really about demonising them, because actually they're fantastic bits of kit. It's not an anti-technology book at all. It's trying to understand how do we use this technology in a way that it helps us rather than harms mm-hmm. us. And I can tell you, you know, and I've seen this time and time again with patients, if you are on your phone from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep at night, that is coming at a cost for so many of us. So how can we erect some sort of fences up around our digital use? A simple thing for me is the two sort of bookends of the day. Can we guard the first part of the day and the last part of the day? So I'm a huge fan of having some phone-free time first thing in the morning, I think it is so critical, even if it's just 10 minutes, because if you wake up and the first thing you do is put this phone on, you go into reactive mode immediately. You're going straight into what other people want you to see, whether it's text messages, WhatsApp messages, emails, social media, what the latest news channels say is the most alarming bit of news to sort of jolt you up with that morning. And so, You know, ideally, I think we should have a golden hour each morning with hopefully an hour where we don't go on our phone or if we need it for something like, for example, I like to meditate first thing in the morning Mm -hmm. and I use the Calm app on my phone. I put my phone on airplane mode so that actually I can use some of its functionality but I can't see text messages and emails and all the other things that might come in. That's a really good tip, because actually I use my phone to listen to audiobooks, which I find is a very enriching good thing, but then my challenge is that I don't sneak onto my email. So I'm going to do that in the future. That's well, very well good. you know, that, that, that goes much further than that. that. That's a great example, but we can think about music. 10 or 15 years ago, actually, we would listen to music probably relatively mindfully compared to how we do it today. In fact, I was chatting to someone a few days ago um, on my podcast, actually, and he, he said to me that actually the original idea behind the iPhone from Steve Jobs was actually just to say instead of carrying a music player and a phone you can actually just put them together and actually just have one device. Mm-hmm. And he didn't actually foresee all these apps and all these other things that we now use our phones for. But what's really interesting is that I've noticed, so I don't live in London, but I'm often here for work. And I've got, you know, it's just under two hours on a fast train to London. And I've noticed that because now a lot of our music's on our phone, that I'll be listening to music, but then I'll also, you know, every few minutes you start to look at your email or your social media. And our attention is constantly being fractured and that is, I see, one of the biggest stresses 
in society. So, you know, a couple of years ago, actually, I realised that music, for example, has become so disposable now. You know, we can get anything we want on our phones. We don't even have to listen to whole albums anymore. And I went into a, a shop um, and I said, right, I'm going to buy a CD player because I'm really into my music. And I said, do you have anything that actually doesn't have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or streaming capability? He said, yeah, we do have one, but why would you want that? And I said, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. He said, we don't really sell many of these because we think they're going to be obsolete. I said, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. It, what it's done for me is it means like I've got it in my kitchen and I've got my old CD collection out. And when I'm chilling out at home, I put a CD on and I just I listen to it. And I, I listen to it from start to finish. I don't constantly flick from track to track. My attention's not being fractured. Mm-hmm. As you said, with the audio book or music, it's like we're, we're li- the reason mindfulness is all the rage now is because we have literally turned into a mindless species in terms of how we do everything. Mm-hmm. And I think phones are a big part of that. Um, tell us about the modern war on love. It's one of my favourite chapters. Yeah, I mean, this chapter's not really about technology, but I think technology plays a role here in the sense that intimacy, I think, is something that is you know, slowly and insidiously being eroded out of our lives, whether it's with our friends or particularly with our partners. And I make the case that many of us actually are having eye affairs with our phone uh, in the sense that we we probably know and touch the curvy contours of our phone more than we do our partners. And what I mean by that is, is that even when we're with our partners, we're often distracted. Uh, I know the feeling when you're coming through the door and you've been working and as you're walking through the door, you're sort of half trying to do your emails as you come in or, or check something and your kids say something to you or your wife does and actually you're not present for that interaction. And I think guarding our digital borders has an immediate take-home effect on our relationships with people who are close to us, whether it's friends, family, work colleagues, partners. And so I kind of feel that actually it's something we all need to prioritise a bit more, just some simple house rules such as, you know what, when I come home from work, I'm going to put my phone away and spend 10 minutes being really present with my partner or with my children. And I think the quality of the time you spend with someone is arguably more important than the quantity. My own daughter called me out on this a couple of years ago when she was four. You know, I was playing with her, but, you know, my mind was slightly on my emails or something I was trying to finish. And she said to me after a while, I said, Daddy, you're not really here, are you? You can always rely on your kids to call it mm-hmm. as it is. And that really, really has changed my behaviour because I thought, she's right. You know, I'm physically here in the room with her, but mentally I'm a million miles away. The studies now show that even if we are sat here, as we're sat across the table now, we've got, and obviously my phone is here, it's there. Even if it's face down, we're still distracted. Mm-hmm. If you complete a task that you have to do, but your phone is to hand, you've completed it with an IQ about 10 points lower than if it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. That's how distracting these things are. So it's about trying to get back to basics, the sort of thing we were all doing about 10 or 15 years ago. There's, I guess, another sort of situation here which will probably resonate with people is if people are in a romantic relationship, it's not uncommon now for two partners of any sort to be lying in bed together. And actually, they're both on their phones. They're both living in their personalised worlds. They can watch their own custom stream on Netflix or their own emails or their own social media feed the time that in the past they would have spent being intimate or cuddling actually a lot of that is going out of society and how do I know this well this is what patients tell me day in day out earlier on in the program we were talking about January publishing which traditionally has been a lot about crash dieting I loved all the stuff about food in your book tell us what your view is on how we might aspire to eat 
food is always something people are thinking about when we're trying to change our health. And actually, I'd say that, that one of the things I'm really passionate about is when people are trying to change their diets, often, particularly in January, you know, for a week or two, they might be motivated. Oh, all right, I'm going to cut back on sugar. You know, December was craziness for sugar. I'm going to really cut back. And I find that willpower only lasts so long because ultimately, if you're using sugar to compensate for the stresses in your life or to help soothe the stresses in your life, actually, you know, you're always going to be destined to go back to your pre-existing intake. And I see that time and time again. It's the same thing with booze. If you're using alcohol to deal with the stresses in your life, actually, willpower will not be enough. You need to address some of that. Then there'll be less of an urge to use the alcohol, to use the sugar in that way. But in terms of diet, you know, one thing I'm, I'm a huge fan of is if people have tried to focus on what they eat without much effect, I'd say focus on when you eat. Because we know now from the Salk Institute in California where there's a lot of studies now, a lot of science on something called time-restricted eating, which is when you, they don't really focus on what you eat, it's when you eat. And we've got natural daily rhythms, what's called the circadian rhythm. And when we don't live in harmony with those rhythms, that is a big stressor on the body. Now, if we're talking about foods, right, we're not designed to eat food from the minute we wake up to lasting at night when we're in front of Netflix watching something, <laughs> right? We're not, we're not designed to do that. And a very simple thing people can think about doing is eating all the food that they're going to eat within a 12-hour window. So what does that mean? That would mean, let's say you have your breakfast at 7 a.m., you would finish eating your dinner by 7 p.m. or 8 till 8 or 9 till 9. It's not actually that difficult I, do, I mean, again, I've been doing it and it's dead easy. It's super simple. Mm -hmm. But if you don't think about it, often many of us are going to 14 or 15 hours. We're sort of snacking something at 6.30 and, and in front of the TV at night at about, you know, 9 o'clock or 9.30, we're snacking on something else. And actually many of us are going 14, 15 hours a day of eating. We know that if you give your body a 12-hour gap from food in every 24 hours, and hopefully you're sleeping for the majority of that time, you know, hopefully for seven or eight hours you're sleeping, Actually, there's all kinds of benefits, including improved immune system function, better blood sugar control, improved weight, so people can even lose weight doing this. And some studies are now showing that you can improve your fitness level. So some athletes are doing this. They're doing time-restricted eating. And it's a very simple thing that just helps you live a bit more in harmony with your natural rhythms. Mm -hmm. um, some people ask, can I go more aggressive than that? Yes, you can, but my whole approach is to try and take a rounded, a holistic approach to health. If you're managing to maintain all your food intake within 12 hours, you know, give yourself a tick and move on to something else. <laughs> it's, you know, many of us, we, we, we're quite reductionist about health. We think, oh, 12 hours works. Well, what if I restrict it to 10 hours? What I'm looking for is to help people make sustainable change. We can all go on a crash diet for a week and lose weight and feel good, right? That doesn't interest me. What interests me is helping people feel better in one week, in one month, in one year. Another lovely thing which I've been doing with my son, I think this is great for kids, tell us about eating the alphabet. So in a nutshell, the food you eat, instead of thinking about energy and calories, we now need to think about information. Food is information. Basically, is the food that you are eating sending calm signals up to your brain or is it sending stress signals? And the, the reason I came up with this whole idea of eat the alphabet is we know one of the components of a healthy gut is diversity of gut bugs. How do you do that? You have a diversity of foods. Many of us, we have our favorites, our staples that we'll have multiple times a week. I know I've been guilty of doing this on many occasions. And this whole idea of eat the alphabet is can you eat 26 different plant foods in any given month? Not in a week. My whole approach is trying to make things 
achievable so that people think, yeah, I can do that. And, and it's a really fun thing to do with a family or with your children. You engage them. It's like, oh, you know, mummy, we, we had broccoli, actually. We've already got B. You know, let's try something else. Let's, you know, let's try a different one. Let's let's try some blueberries. For ex- oh, that's B as well. <laughs> yeah, you know. It is fun. And we've we rebranded... Um because we have quite a lot of A's already, so we've rebranded aubergine as eggplant because we don't have as many E's, and courgettes as zucchini because hey, we have uh, plenty of carrots. I, I was going to go for the zucchini one. I thought I'd <laughs> well, actually, I, I think I did that in the book. I had to, I had to take a bit of artistic license yeah. when we got to Z, and I, I think I did put a zucchini in there. Yeah. Um, because, you know what, you've got to be a bit creative. What could we do for X? What could we do for X? You know what? I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's there's a Chinese watermelon, which is spelled X-I-G-U-A. Right. I think it's pretty hard to get in the UK. But if you're having 26 different plant foods in a month, it can very quickly start making a difference. That's brilliant. We're nearly out of time. I'm going to say to you to tell us one more quick intervention. What do you want people to know about that I haven't asked you that might just help them improve their lives a little bit? I'll tell you the favourite part of my day. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's related to the book. It's related to stress. And it's to do with gratitude. Okay, there's a lot of science now that gratitude helps our physical health our emotional health, our psychological health. It helps us reframe our day and look at the positive that's happened. And a friend actually told me about this game a few years ago, and actually I've implemented it with my children and my wife. And every night at the dinner table, we all have to go around and answer three questions. What have I done today to make somebody else happy? What has somebody else done today to make me happy? And what have I learned today? And if I'm honest, you know, when my friend told me about it, I thought, oh, this is going to be really, really good for the kids. It's going to really help teach them. (laughs) And the reality is, it's probably just, if not more beneficial for my wife and I, because what it does, if we're coming into dinner time a bit stressed and anxious, there's a lot of going on, whether it's school, clubs after school, or whether I've got home late from work, actually it changes the dynamic instantaneously. And for those parents who are listening, if you know that feeling when you've asked your kids, you know, how was school today? What did you get up to? And you're met with blank faces. Actually, this game is a great way you start to learn things about each other. Like my daughter a few weeks ago said, oh, Daddy, you know, um, Annabelle opened the door for me today and held it open as I walked through. And it sounds like a small thing, but what you're doing, A, with children, but also with yourself, is that you're helping to de-stress because you're training yourself to look at the positive that has happened on every day. And for most of us, There are positives in every day. Even if we've had a bad day, a stressful day, there are some nice things. And I think that's a very simple way of actually playing a gratitude game with your family. There's plenty more gratitude ideas in the book, but that's probably my favourite one. That's lovely. Dr Rangan Chatterjee, it's been a great pleasure. And talking to you and meeting you will go on my gratitude list the next time I write it. Oh, fantastic. And thank you for having me. (laughs) That's a pleasure. Thanks very much. And now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel and we're heading to Bristol to quiz the book doctors. Thanks, Cathy. Each show we ask a couple of bookshops for their recommendations for readers keen to get new ideas. This time we're very lucky because we have not one but two Bristol indies. And six months ago there weren't any indies in Bristol. What a turnaround. So let me introduce you to Jess Paul from Max Minerva's and Emily Ross from Storysmith. Hello both. Hi. Hello. So before we kick off with our readers, um, congratulations. Jess, uh, Max Minerva's Pip Storysmith by a couple of weeks, I think. How did it come about? Only a couple of weeks. Um, it was great. It was a, used to be a bookshop um, on the same premises. And when it closed, I think the whole community felt a huge loss. Um, so when we took it over, we've been kind of just welcomed with open arms, which has been fantastic. Oh, that's fantastic. So uh, for those who don't know Bristol, maybe they're going there. We can sort of direct them in your both your directions. 
Who's north? Who's south? Where is Max Minerva's in relation to Max that? Max Minerva's is north on Northview. Right. <laughs> and, and Emily, you're south in North Street. Yes. So we're, we're the Battle of the North. <laughs> okay, so you're not going to have to fight each other. You know, you, you, you've got enough Bristolians to go around. Exactly. All right. And, and Emily, I popped into Storysmith just before Christmas. Yeah. It's a lovely shop. Um, and uh, the locals, the community down your way, have they been welcoming you with open arms? Yeah, they really have. We've uh, we've been really delighted by the reception. We've had a very warm welcome. And, yeah, I think lots of people saying that it's what North Street needed. So we're very pleased. Oh, well, that's fantastic. And generally, I mean, Indies... Uh, uh, the figures from the Booksellers Association, you know, there were something like 80 odd new shops opening and indie bookshops generally are doing well. So this is a fantastic thing. It's a good news story at the start of 2019. Yeah, it's really positive. So shall we, um, shall we talk about our readers and what we can do for them? So the first one, and this is perfectly apposite, is James, who lives in Bristol. Uh, he's a media production teacher working with 16, 18 year olds. And he wasn't even aware that there were any independents in Bristol now. He goes to Foils, he likes the folk at Foils, but now he's got some Indies to go and visit too. The last book he read was A Boy Made of Blocks by Keith Stewart, which uh, focuses on autism. But the sort of thing he's looking for is something that comments on current situations within the world. He wants to get lost in a book that really grips him. So Jess, do you want to go first on that one with an idea? Sure. So I had a couple of options, but I really thought that uh, Tara Westover's autobiography, Educated, um, was something he might really enjoy, all about overcoming uh, an adversity. And it's a very unique adversity. It's not something you really hear about, you know, sort of a life in a doomsday cult, not having a birth certificate, not having any record um, of existence, and then overcoming all that to, you know, become who she is and see what a person can really achieve. I thought that was a fantastic book. It is Barack Obama's, one of his top books of 2018. Oh, well, so if, I think, if it's good uh, enough for Yeah. <laughs> yes. And funny enough, there was one I thought of, which was the James O'Brien book, the LBC host, How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong, which I don't know if, if you've uh, read yeah. that, but um, that is it's sort of dealing with the nonsenses that are going on at the moment. So, well, we've got very different things for him there. So hopefully one of those uh, will work. I hope you're listening, James. So, you know, we can actually <laughs> go out and buy these books, uh, one from the north and one from the south. And then you can get the third from Foils if you want. Now, the next two are a husband and wife. So this is Helen and Michael, and they're from uh, Wokingham in Berkshire, I think that is. Helen's semi-retired PR woman, and Michael is retired as well. Both, I mean, I think quite heavy readers. Helen, uh, like many folk, has just finished uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming. And Michael, wasn't one I knew, Haphazard by Starlight. A very good mixture of poetry and reflections on Advent, he says. Now, they're both into historical fiction. Robert Harris' particular favourite of Michael's, but also anything around ethics and philosophy they were talking about, but also poetry. So, historical fiction, maybe? Jess, what what did you think about for, for Michael and Helen? Well, funnily enough, uh, historical fiction is the route I went down for Helen. Um, I chose a book that is about to be published. It's called Blood and Sugar by Laura Shepard Robinson, uh, it's her first novel, and she's already had uh, you know, fantastic reviews from C.J. Sansom. So considering that's something that um, I think both of them enjoy, I thought this might be a good one. Not only that, she's also Bristol born and raised. So oh, well. I thought that'd be a... It's that Bristol <laughs> mafia again, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. 
Well, funnily enough, an earlier part of the show, Tom Tivnan, bookseller, was recommending that very self-same book. And she is going out. Uh, I don't know whether it's talks or book signings, but I remember seeing that she's out on the road. So that's a she great choice. Indeed, yeah. 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 What did you think about for Michael? For Michael, I chose Boy on the Water, one of the William Hill Sports Books of the Year for last year about Tom Gregory, who at 11 years old became the youngest person to swim the English Channel. I thought Michael may like his sports books. I know that he liked The Test by Nathan Lennon. Yeah. Yeah, so it was either that or Arlette Swanson and the Soul of English Cricket, which I think would have been, would be right down his alley. I'm sure he'd love that Arlette book, yeah, definitely. And, and Emily, Michael and Helen, what, what were you thinking about for them? So I've gone for some non-fiction. So for Helen, I've gone for Gina Miller's Rise, um, which is an account of how she single-handedly challenged the government about their authority to invoke Article 50. Um, And it's also an account of the sort of suffering and abuse that she she went through as a result of, of this. And it's also a memoir about motherhood. Um, she's got a child with learning difficulties. So it's just a really honest account. And I think that ties in well with, I think she enjoyed Michelle Obama's... She did, coming, you're absolutely right, yeah. Um, and enjoyed the sort of honesty and feminist angles there. So I've gone for something on that, on that spectrum. And Michael, what, what were you thinking of with Michael? And for Michael, I've gone for uh, Erebus. From Michael Palin. Um, oh, that's which is a great idea. Great choice, yeah. Yeah, the story of the ship that embarked on a polar exploration and disappeared in the Arctic. So, yeah, it's got recounts of the experiences of the, the men on board from all the research that Michael Palin has done and the rescue mission and quite gruesome suffering that they went through. So, um, yeah, I think he would enjoy that. I'm sure you're right. And I think actually, if Michael's fairly recently retired, almost in the kind of the generation before him, sort of my father's and and uncle, is exactly the sort of book that I would get for them. And Michael Palin is such a, apart from being such a lovely bloke, you know, he's such a reliable author. It's it's one of those ones like certain actors in films, you think, oh, well, if it's a so and so, safe pair of hands, yeah. So let's head up slightly further north, up to Hertfordshire, and Danielle, who's a marketing consultant. I'm not exactly sure where she lives, but unfortunately she hasn't got an indie, so she'll have to make a trip down to Bristol. She's just finished The Tattooist of Auschwitz, and possibly in reaction to that, she's looking for something light-hearted, fast-paced, not too heavy. So what are we going to give Danielle? So I thought that for Danielle, Lisa Evans' new book, Old Baggage, would be great. It's kind of in the same vein as Dear Mrs. Bird. It's very lighthearted, wry, very witty. And this is all about a woman who is now in her 50s and she used to be a suffragette. You know, she used to go to prison um, for, her, for her values and now she kind of feels like she's past it. But she's not ready to be past it yet. <laughs> and she's ready for some adventures. So I think that's a very lighthearted and a, a, a good, happy read with a beautiful message. Well, those are great choices. So I really hope that... Our readers from, where are we, from Hertfordshire to Berkshire to Bristol, um, I hope they've, they've got something out of that. And the rest of our listeners, you know, we hope James comes into the, the shops, um, both of them. He's not allowed to just go to one of them like <laughs> I did before Christmas. That would be terrible. That's been great. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time uh, and your expertise and your enthusiasm. So anyone who's going to Bristol 
or now should go to Bristol. You know, do pop in and and wherever you are. Uh, I'm afraid I've ripped this phrase off from somebody or other. Buying books on the high street isn't the only way, but it's the best way. Jess from Max Minerva, Emily from Story Smith, thank you so much, and and see you next time I'm down in Bristol. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Nigel. Weren't they great? Well, they were fantastic, yeah. And I love the fact that we've got new indies around the country. Fantastic. Nothing not to love, is there? So tell me, are you doing any exciting booky things in January? I think you've been using BookGeek, haven't you? Because you've put me onto it and um, I'm a bit entranced. T- explain to us how it works. BookGeek is, is brilliant, isn't it? It's an absolute little gem. So what it is, is a listing of book events. You know, funny enough, it's, well, it's, it's all very so Ronsealish, isn't it? it? Yeah. Yes. So, um, and, it, you know, it's got the big stuff, you know, the big names uh, in the big venues down to authors in, in indie bookshops up and down the land. And there's, there's some great stuff coming up over the next couple of months. There were a couple I noticed. Uh, Stacey Dooley on the front line with the women who fight back. Stacey Dooley, who won Strictly, of course, um, and a book that I just finished reading, uh, Once Upon a River, Diane mm. Setterfield, which I loved, absolutely loved it. Um, she's bombing up and down the country. And then in completely the other direction, Bear Grylls is interviewing the world's greatest explorer, Sir Ranulph Fiennes. Uh, I think that's at the South Bank. And then you're on there. Cathy, am I? Cathy Where am on I there. going? <laughs> uh, you are going to Western Supermare. I am going to Western Supermare, yeah. yes. So it's a, it's a great thing. Lots and lots of stuff there. So I'll be going to one of those somewhere, I think. So that's it for now. Please tweet at the bookseller or come to our Facebook page and tell us what you'd like us to cover in future podcasts. Or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts or at thebookseller.com, where you can also find out about all the books we've mentioned. Thanks to the Book Doctors for their picks, thanks to all our guests, and thank you to the readers who sent in their questions. Now, as promised, here is Carl Prekop reading from The Binding by Bridget Collins with music by Tim Steamson. Our hero and narrator Emmett Farmer has been summoned to begin an apprenticeship as a bookbinder. This is a vocation that arouses fear, superstition and prejudice, and this clip describes a discovery Emmett makes in Serideth, the bookbinder's workshop. I defy you to listen to this and then not immediately want to go and buy the book and do enjoy Carl Prekop's gorgeous accent. And that will end the second edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thank you for listening. Happy reading and see you next month. I reached out and unwrapped the bundle as gently as if it was alive. It was a book block, neatly sewn, with thick dark end papers threaded with white like tiny roots reaching through soil. The blood sang in my fingertips. A book. The first book I'd seen since I'd been here. The first since I was a child and learned that they were forbidden. But holding it now, I felt nothing but a kind of peace. I brought it to my face and inhaled the smell of paper. I almost opened it to look at the title page, but I was too curious about what was under the other bit of sacking. I put the block down and drew back the cloth. Here was the cover Seredith had been making. For a moment, before I understood what I was seeing, it was beautiful. The background was black velvet, So fine it absorbed every glint of light and lay on the bench like a piece of solid darkness. The inlay stood out against it like ivory, shining softly 
pale gold in the lamplight. Bones. A skeleton. The spine curled like a row of pearls round pale twigs of legs and arms, and the tiny splinters of toes and fingers. The skull bulged like a mushroom. They were smaller than my outstretched hand, those bones. They were small and fragile as a bird's. But it wasn't... It hadn't been a bird. It was a baby. Thank you.